A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. What we find is that to convince a, you know, an institutional real estate company to switch from their current you know, portfolio management software to a new portfolio management software, you can't be 10% better or even 50% better. You have to be 10 times better. You know, there are huge costs involved in adopting software at the enterprise level. On this episode, I'm speaking with Nate Lowenthal, Senior Associate at Camber Creek. Nate supports Camber Creek's deal flow, diligence, transactions, and investor and public relations. Prior to joining the firm, Nate founded and scaled multiple national organizations, including the Roosevelt Campus Network. He also served as a special assistant to the president at the National Economic Council in the Obama White House, where he led work in areas like transportation, aviation, and urban policy. He's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, and dozens of other outlets, and is previously a Forbes 30 Under 30 and Baltimore Business Journal 40 Under 40. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Nate, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I want to start out, I, I know that you come from quite a few generations that have had uh, quite a hand in, in the real estate space. So how many are we talking about here and, and what's the story there? Well, yeah, so I'm fourth generation of a real estate family. My great, great grandfather started out selling building supplies in Westchester County uh, outside New York City. And uh, his son, my paternal grandfather, took over that business and then said, you know, why are we just selling the concrete? Why don't we actually use it? And so he started doing commercial and, and residential development also in Westchester County and built the house that he and my grandmother lived in and, and raised my father and, and his siblings in. Uh, and then all three of his kids, my dad, my dad's brother, and my aunt, well, really her husband, all in different ways have been in the real estate business. So it's uh, sort of in the bloodstream. Yeah, wow. And, and where did uh, your parents call home originally? And, and sort of what were they working on as you all grew up as, as you were a kid? Well, yeah, so so my both sides of my family are from the New York area. My mom grew up in, in Brooklyn. And my dad, as I said, grew up in, in Westchester, but I actually grew up in, in Baltimore City. So my mom was in law school in D.C. My dad started doing some redevelopment work in, in southwest Baltimore City. And so my mom got a job there. And then we, we moved to a neighborhood called uh, Holland's Market, uh, which is a historic neighborhood sort of just west of, of downtown Baltimore. And so we lived there when I was a kid. My mom was a federal public defender in, in, in Baltimore. And then, yeah, eventually moved out to, to Baltimore County. And your dad, being a developer, I know they had a, a project or two when you were growing up and kind of got you, got your eyes on that, on that world a little bit more kind of one-to-one. 
Was there anything that he developed during that time that, that stood out to you? Well, my dad would, what he was trying to do, and it was in a sense kind of a family effort, was really help revitalize the, the Holland's Market neighborhood. Uh, and so he bought up a number of, of row houses and was improving them, some selling, renting out. I wish that the uh, story was a, a great success. It, it wasn't. And that was, it was and is still a, a challenging neighborhood uh, and, you know, never quite turned out the way he had hoped. But my family stayed very involved in the neighborhood. My dad ended up becoming an antique book dealer, a rare book dealer. And he had a, a bookshop right across from the Holland's Market. And then later he opened a, a Mexican restaurant called The Cultured Pearl. And if you talk to someone, you know, between ages 40 and 60 in Baltimore who lived in the city in the late 80s and 90s, they all used to hang out at The Cultured <laughs> Pearl. Uh, and so I grew up spending a lot of time there and in the bookshop. And so he was more successful as a restaurateur and book dealer than mm. as a, a real estate developer. So these were in in Baltimore City proper, but you actually ended up moving out to the suburbs. You've told me in, in previous conversations that that you tried to stay and you ended up staying pretty connected to city life in a few different ways, including your, your father's shops. And what other ways did you find yourself trying to remain connected? And, and I guess a secondary question there would be, why were you trying to stay connected? Yeah, it's funny. In, in retrospect, things always uh, come out more clearly than they did at the time. But I think I always felt torn between the sort of bucolic uh, green yards of, of suburbia and, you know, my childhood in, in Baltimore City. And my mom was a federal public defender in Baltimore City. And so her life was very much tied up, you know, for better and for worse with Baltimore. And so in high school, I helped found this project to uh, raise money to build a house with Habitat for Humanity and organize students to actually physically build the house. So again, it's mm. funny looking back. I mean, I didn't think about it at the time, but obviously it's like another real estate type thing, construction. So I learned to actually, you know, hang drywall and whatnot and also how to raise money. Uh, and we ended up doing this project where it was 10 houses in 10 years in the Waverly neighborhood of Baltimore. Uh, and my school became a real leader in the you know, greater Baltimore area for our kind of this community service effort, which really put us, you know, as you know, with Habitat for Humanity, you build alongside the future homeowners who put in sweat equity to the project. So it was a great way to get to know folks in the Waverly neighborhood. You know, and again, my, you know, I was, my dad's business was down there. The restaurant was down there. So we, mm -hmm. uh, we spent a lot of time, at, you know, in the city throughout my, my high school years. You also took a class, I, I recall, specifically on the history of Baltimore. What, what was that all about? Yeah, so in, in high school, my, my school was just outside city limits. There was a teacher who was really interested in, in Baltimore and how it had evolved over the years. So I took a course on that, which gave me a, you know, a real perspective on you know, what were the forces that had shaped Baltimore? You know, why had so many families, especially white families, left the city? What were the, you know, how had the federal government, um, you know, used redlining to make it more difficult for African-American families to get mortgages? What impacts had that had in terms of the city segregation? Looking at the transportation infrastructure in Baltimore, why did 83 South cut through downtown, uh, but there was no great, you know, fixed line public transportation system? You know, and the history of Baltimore has a lot in common with the history of many other 
post-industrial cities from, you know, Pittsburgh to Cleveland to Detroit. And so it was, in a sense, a, a history of how, you know, much of American cities had fared, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the second half of the 20th century. So throughout your high school career, you know, clearly you're kind of getting your hands dirty, literally and figuratively, right? Building houses and and learning about the area. Something happened, though, right at that decision point when you had to kind of figure out, what am I doing next? Where am I going to school? Someone came to visit your high school and and sparked your interest. And you you ended up sort of following uh, that lead to some degree. Can you give us that story and and that transition into, into college? Yeah, it's funny. Again, you get these sort of moments, at least I have in my life, where I hear about something someone's doing, and I'm like, I'm going to do that. You know? <laughs> I like, really like, and I get after it. And so when I, I must have been maybe a sophomore and a junior in high school, and one of our graduates from the Park School of Baltimore came to give a talk, and he had gone to Yale as an undergraduate and majored in this program called Ethics, Politics, and Economics, which is this inter- special interdisciplinary program. He had use that as a way to focus on studying cities. And he came back to actually talk about the research he had done. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that sounds exactly right. And so then I ended up applying to Yale and, and got in. And I don't want to get out of the story, but then I ended up actually majoring in this program in ethics, politics, and economics, which at the time was the only way to really study urban policy and politics uh, at Yale as a major. I mean, you could have done history or sociology, but mm. to really get, you know, take courses in the economics department and the architecture school and uh, history and combine them all together, EPNE was really the only way to do it. Mm. And, and when, you, when you got to Yale, did you end up doing a lot of extra stuff, sort of extracurricular groups and organization type, type of work, or did you stick primarily to kind of the book work of that, that program? I was always very kind of mixed up in in what was happening in in New Haven. Again, I mean, I think I just felt like it, it would have been easy to get lost in the the quads of Yale. But New Haven's a, a great city and a place I really fell in love with. So I was very involved in an organization called the Elmseed Enterprise Fund, uh, which is still around. It's a nonprofit that provides micro credit loans to low income New Haven entrepreneurs. So, you know, I spend a lot of time with a, a group of folks, um, you know, who are starting hot dog carts or consignment shops. And, you know, I didn't know anything about business, honestly, so I didn't pretend to advise them on that. But I, you know, helped raise the money for Elm Seed and facilitate the loans. And we did, you know, connect them to resources around New Haven. And I remember my first summer, I had an internship in New York City working with the New York City Parks Department. And I was still running these weekly New Haven sessions with the, you know, the group of entrepreneurs and I felt a real commitment to them. And so I was shuttling back and forth on the New Haven line every Wednesday night uh, to make the uh, 7 p.m. <laughs> meetings that we had. I got very involved in the Yale Entrepreneurial Society, then had a couple hopelessly failed startups. <laughs> uh, and then I also was very politically engaged. And so I ended up helping start this organization called then the Roosevelt Institution, now called the Roosevelt Campus Network. Uh, and that ended up becoming kind of a defining experience for that part of my life because it was this effort to get students more engaged in public policy outside of the campaign cycle. So rather than just knocking on doors, you know, students could contribute ideas and substantive research and advocacy. Uh, and so it was sort of a student think tank in a sense. And we started at Yale and Stanford, and it ended up becoming one of the largest student organizations in the country. And to this day, it has over 10,000 members at about 120 mm. 
schools around the U.S. Looking back, I'm, I'm really curious because, it, and this is kind of a big question, but, but you know, looking back, it's, it's easy. It seems so easy for you to sort of rattle off these two, three, four things that you became involved in and you were dedicated to and very much community building, leadership, entrepreneurial activities. Where did that come from? Is that, is that simply seeing your family and your father work through those businesses or, or do you feel like it, it can be attributed to, to multiple things? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I think my mom always had a very strong ethic of service. Uh, and my father came from a, a line of people who had built their own businesses. And so I think I've always been a little back and forth between the entrepreneurial side of me and the kind of public service side. And Roosevelt was a, a great opportunity to bring both of those, those interests together in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my sister now runs her own very successful business. Uh, my brother's working with my dad. So I think we're just a, a group of people who, who like to maybe have control <laughs> of our own schedule some of the time. So, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and so, you you were at Yale. You've done all of these uh, you know incredible things in terms of thinking about the average college student who's probably you know pretty wrapped up in campus life, enjoying the parties, drinking beers on you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night kind of thing. Right. Um, but something. Uh, Something happened after that experience, and you you went you actually took a trip to Bolivia, and you called it. You told me it's called, sort of called the Bolivia year for you. Uh, yeah. What was that story about? What what was that all about? Yeah. So after I graduated, I moved to D.C. for two years, and I ran the Roosevelt Institution, which was a you know five hundred one c three nonprofit, and I was you know raising money and managing the team and supporting our chapters and connecting them to progressive political people and organizations around the country. Um, but after three years as an undergrad and two years full-time in DC, I thought it was time to you know, pass the reins to the next generation, so to speak, mm. and hired a fabulous person who did a much better job than I did taking over the organization. And I thought it would be great to travel and see you know, a little bit more of the world. But also I had gotten very engaged while I was at Roosevelt on climate change and uh, environmental resources and sustainability. And so I ended up choosing Bolivia as this very interesting place where you know, they recently elected Evo Morales, who at the time uh, was much heralded. He's uh, had a more mixed experience since then, but he was an indigenous leader, the first indigenous president of a country that's two-thirds indigenous. Bolivia is very, very poor. It's about half the country is very mountainous. It doesn't have ocean access. It, it's like if you're playing civilization, like it's a tough place to build a country. Right. And it's much less developed than some of its neighboring countries and had a very strong ethic of environmental protection and stewardship. And at the same time, their sort of na- their natural resources, uh, timber, natural gas, were some of their only economic opportunities to develop as a country. And so I thought it was a very interesting place to see how development was happening in real time and how the leadership of the country was going to handle the twin pressures of sustainability and, mm. and growth. Um, so I just moved down there with basically no plan and lived in a city called Cochabamba. How long did you live? You lived down there for a full year or was it, was it longer than that? Just less than a year, okay. like almost a whole year. Yeah. You, you threw in a, a last minute anecdote that I have to touch on, uh, just kind of a last minute note that we had in our, uh, in our podcast notes today, but tell me about this bullfight. <laughs> yeah. So I, this is like my, one of my great moments in life where I was living the last couple months I was down there as in a, a very small rural 
village in, in the south, the country called Paso Rapa. And they had an annual festival where they would bring in bulls. And it wasn't a bullfight where you killed the bull. The idea was they would tie little silk handkerchiefs, or not silk, but you know, cloth handkerchiefs to the horns of the bull with a small cash prize inside the handkerchief. And so you had to let the bulls charge you and try to get the handkerchief off the horn where it was mm-hmm. tied very, very tightly. And the first day they had for the kids, so they had like the calves come, these little skinny, you know, young cows, uh, bulls running uh, with the, the persons tied their horns. And I had gotten very close with two brothers who were a little bit older than me. And they're like, oh, you know, you go in with the kids round, basically, mm. which was, you know, humiliating, of course. <laughs> and so I, you know, I went and did that. I was like, all right. And then, and they were like very, they were kind of the prominent members of the community. And so the next day when they had the real bullfight, and these were serious animals, I mean, they were, you know, 800,000 pound bulls, large yeah. horns, scary looking. I'm uh, my two brothers, these guys I was hanging out with, uh, were like, you know, out there the whole time. And none, neither of them could actually get the purse off the horn. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll never live this down if I don't get out there. So then I went out and uh, let the bulls charge me. I got slightly gored on my leg. I also failed to get the purse off, but for my, you know, heroic efforts, the town <laughs> awarded me the cash prize which I learned subsequently you then had to spend on buying drinks for everyone else in the, in the town. So oh, that perfect. was the, uh, the end of the evening. Well, was it worth it? I guess that's the big question. <laughs> <laughs> it was honestly, it's one of those things where I don't, not sure now I would get in the, uh, the ring, but it was uh, certainly one of the greatest experiences of my life. And someone in the town had a quite nice camera actually uh, who was visiting. And so I have some great photos of me looking at my, uh, at my very most kind of action packed moment of my life. All right. Well, if we can get any copies of these photos, these top secret photos, maybe we'll yeah, put, a, sure put them up in the show public notes. Distribution, yeah. <laughs> hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com blueprint. I want to get into a, an aspect of your career that's really unique and, and really pretty cool. And that is the transition into the White House. Without getting too far ahead, talk about that transition from the Bolivia uh, year into that role and, and what was that transition like? Yeah, so in between, I went back to Yale for law school and I was living in DC running Roosevelt before Bolivia when President Obama was elected to the White House. And I just thought this was an opportunity to. You know, contribute to an administration and a leader that I, I deeply admired. So while I was in law school, I, I got an internship at the Domestic Policy Council, which is a policy office within the White House that works on urban affairs, healthcare, many other issues. And I, I specifically was in the urban affairs office. And then after I graduated, I landed a job at the National Economic Council, which is kind of a sister organization within the White House but that focuses obviously more on economic issues. And so it goes by the NEC. So I was at the NEC for 
three and a half years. I, I can tell you a little bit more about that experience, but that was kind of how I ended up pivoting into the White House. Yeah, please do. What What was that day to day like, and, and kind of what was your what were you in charge of at that time, and where kind of where did you have your your specialties kind of looking over at that point? Yeah, so I had actually written my senior thesis at Yale on public transportation in Baltimore City, or lack thereof, really. Mm. And I was really interested in that that side of urban development. And so I ended up running the transportation portfolio at the National Economic Council, which meant everything from I wrote the rules for integrating drones into the commercial airspace of the United States, working with the FAA to finalize regulations. That was super interesting. I ran the president's Build America Investment Initiative, which was an effort to mobilize private investment infrastructure and at the same time kind of lay down rules for the road about how that investment could support good jobs and infrastructure that would provide benefits to, to citizens. And through transportation, also ended up running other infrastructure policies. So I led the president's Broadband Opportunity Council. I worked on water infrastructure and ports kind of anything that involved federal spending on on infrastructure. Mm. And then I was also very, you know, always hoping to do a little bit more on, on cities. And in 2015, the unrest in, in Baltimore, you know, c- caught national attention and shone a spotlight on some of the challenges in my hometown. And so the White House ended up standing up a task force for Baltimore City which I, I ran for the last year of the administration. And we had 15 federal agencies coordinating very closely to kind of provide direct, immediate access and response to Baltimore. And so mm. through that, we mobilized about $110 million in federal funding for Baltimore. We launched jobs programs. We improved some of the city's infrastructure, uh, helped deal with the opioid crisis. And yeah, so that was like probably, you know, from the perspective of someone from Baltimore to have that opportunity was uh, one of the great experiences in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And give us a quick time check about what year is this? So that was the last year of the Obama administration. So starting probably December 2015 through January 2017. And I I was in the White House from September 2013, after I graduated law school, right through um, January 2017. Okay. And what did you find yourself doing after the White House stint? I mean, it seems like a, looking back, it's probably just another story to you, but it's so fascinating to sort of move into the White House, then transition out of it with the administration. And then obviously there's this piece of venture capital, which is a huge part of the story and, and, and the meat of the conversation we're about to get into. What, what did you do after the White House, and did you go right into the venture capital world? So I, I did not go right into the venture capital world. So through this White House task force, had a lot of exposure to the city and, and state government, as you can imagine. And I was, I would say, frustrated, to put it lightly, at the uh, lack of focus on the violence in Baltimore. Um, Baltimore's had... Uh, the first or second highest murder rate in the country every year for the past five years. The bloodshed is is truly horrific, and it's uh, you know ninety five percent African Americans, ninety percent African American male victims, and it's 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 horrible. And so I I went back to run for public office. I moved to Southeast Baltimore and I ran for the state legislature on a kind of a progressive violence reduction and, and crime reduction uh, platform. 
Uh, I ran kind of head headlong into the uh, Maryland Democratic Party establishment, which is an important learning experience for me. Mm. And so I lost my my campaign. Uh, it was about a year of knocking doors. I knocked six thousand doors, uh, raised a lot of money, and really hustled. And then it was really after that that I I joined my my current firm, Camber Creek, and. You know, I've been laying the groundwork for that for years. Again, um, Camera Creek's a prop tech-focused venture capital firm, so we're one of the leaders in the country for investing in real estate technology companies, companies mm-hmm. that provide products and services to the real estate industry. And so, you know, the, the family history in real estate and the uh, work I did at the White House on emerging technologies like drones, uh, it was it was kind of a natural fit for me. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great transition, and and so. For those that aren't familiar with your firm, let's let's start there as we as we dive in. Give us the brief overview, and 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 for those who aren't familiar, what's the work that you're that you find yourself knee deep in, and who are some of the the companies that you're working with today? Yeah, so Camber Creek, as I said, is one of the country's premier prop tech venture capital firms, and we're based in suburban uh, Washington D.C. with offices in New York and San Francisco, and the firm. Its model is built around a network of limited partners. So our the, the investors who invest in Canberra Creek's funds, the large majority of those investors are themselves real estate owners and operators. And so the firm has about a billion square feet of commercial property and, and hundreds of thousands of multifamily units, as well as construction and, uh, and other verticals represented in our investor pool. Mm-hmm. And what that allows us to do is to, number one, when we are diligencing a company rather than kind of speculating about their ability to sell or trying to figure out how valuable the product is for a real estate firm, we just go to our LPs and say, will you take a meeting with these folks? And if they say yes and they get pitched and they buy the product, that's a very good sign to us. And if they say that's not that interesting or not that valuable, and we hear that two or three times, that's also a good indicator that's probably not a good investment. Uh, and so we think of that as kind of our, our beta lab for products. And then once we do invest, we're able to bring the strategic benefit of this network to bear uh, to help companies grow. And so we're able to provide this direct market access and, and set of introductions and relationships in the real estate industry, which is you know can be incredibly valuable because it's an industry that can be very difficult to break into. Mm. Uh, so that's the, the Camber Creek model. And some of our investments include VTS, which is a you know, billion dollar plus company that's an online platform for leasing. Latch, which is one of the leaders in smart access, uh, really cool company, beautiful products for the multifamily sector. They have a big partnership with UPS to deliver into non-doorman buildings in major cities. Y Hotel is another great company. Uh, they run pop-up hotels in, in luxury residential buildings during the lease-up phase. So those are a couple examples of our, our portfolio. Yeah, and, and tell me about your role on the team. You just kind of went through more of a, a assessment and an advising arm of the of the business. Is that where you really reside? Or are you f- focusing more on particular aspects or emerging technologies? Kind of going full circle back to the work you did with the White House. Yeah, good question. We all do a little bit of everything at the firm, so. Spend a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs every week. We do, you know, we're six to ten calls with with startups, hearing about the latest and greatest, which is fun. I mean, 
you learn quickly when you're being sold something that's legit and when you're being sold something less legit. Uh, and it's a great way to keep track of what's happening across the market. Once you decide that you know they're selling something legit, you have to go through a pretty extensive diligence process. Some venture firms are a little more shoot from the hip. So, you know, we met them twice. They seem smart. Uh, we're in, which, you know, works for some people. We are on the much more thorough side of things. So we're we're going to conduct 10, you know, 10 to 20 market interviews with competitors or potential customers. We're going to dig through your financials. We're going to get reference calls on you from current employees, former employees, friends, colleagues, <laughs> former mentors. Like we're going to mm. do a 360 review of the people involved. We're going to dig into the financials in pretty significant detail. Uh, so that diligence process is, you know, takes four to eight weeks usually. Uh, so I'll do a bunch of the diligence work. I, I also um, do some of our PR and media work, and I, I help the firm uh, raise money as well. Now, talk to me a little bit more about that that due diligence phase. How would you describe what you are looking for in those portfolio or partner companies? And is there anything unique that you can speak to that that you look for that you feel like others others out there, you know, do not look for? I think as a a firm that's not based in San Francisco, we tend to look with a little bit of skepticism at at folks who have a big idea and are raising major financing rounds without much of a product in hand yet. We we see those as bets and we don't like making bets. We like making smart investments. And so we're we like to find companies that have been scrappy, that have put together a real product already and gotten into the marketplace without huge resources. That kind of hustle and, and scrappiness is really important to us. Second would be having a new twist on a product or service that allows you to differentiate in the market in a meaningful way. What we find is that to convince a you know a institutional real estate company to switch from their current you know portfolio management software to a new portfolio management software, you can't be 10% better or even 50% better. You have to be 10 times better. You know, there are huge costs involved in adopting software at the enterprise level. And so we look for folks who are really approaching a problem in a new way. And I think a great example there is the Y Hotel, which I mentioned earlier. Every developer who's building a multifamily building worries about the first 12 to 18 months, the lease-up phase, because they're hemorrhaging money while they get people in the door to actually rent these apartments, and they're worried about whether they'll get rented at all. Why Hotel comes in and says, look, as you're leasing up, we'll run a pop-up hotel in your building and you know, provide you this found money, a completely new source of revenue uh, to, you know, to help defray some of the risk during this you know, initial period. Um, so when we saw that, that's, you know, that's a great, it's a business process innovation. That's not really a technology company. I mean, you know, there's obviously technology involved, but it's really about finding a new way to use an asset. And so we we love that kind of company. So yeah, so I think those two things, the kind of scrappiness factor and the kind of new value add meaningful differentiation. That that brings up another question for me. You know, our firm is very much on the on the technology and, and software and kind of app development side. But it makes me wonder about the the companies in your portfolio and the and the firms that you look for, and it kind of is all surrounding this idea of software versus hardware and 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 software is it software and hardware is it software versus hardware? Do you feel like it's one or the other or, or both or is it does it matter? Is it just more so the solution at hand that you kind of referenced earlier? 
Yeah, for us, we're never thinking in terms of categories like that. It's more about the specifics of the business and their ability to scale quickly and get good margins. And even on the margins, if you're you know, if you're a pure SaaS company, your margins could be 70, 80, 90%. If you're hardware, that's unlikely. That could be maybe 40%. But, you know, that's going to come into play when we decide about your valuation, but not necessarily whether you're a good investment. Uh, so, for example, Latch, which I mentioned, they build a hardware product, the actual locks uh, and also some uh, affiliated products like a you know, camera unit that sits outside the building and things like that. But they also have a software product that goes along with it. So it's like kind of a, a razor and razor blade model. You sell this the locks, and then there's a subscription software to actually operate the locks. So that's a you know great business. Curbio is is one of our newer investments. They are a technology enabled general contracting firm uh, that focuses on pre sale home renovation. Uh, so they're not really a software provider or a hardware provider. They're really a service provider, but they've come up with a very targeted market, uh, very sophisticated technology backend, and great execution. And they're, I mean, crushing it. So uh, again, you know, it's more about uniqueness and the differentiation of the product and, and the team behind it, and less about kind of hard details. Yeah. Nate, as we, as we start to wrap up the podcast, I don't want to, to miss touching on this point, And that is, you have a lot of experience in this overlap area of housing, affordable housing and, t- and technology. What are you most interested in or maybe optimistic about within that realm at this point? And do you see anything on the horizon that, that you can speak to? That's a great question. I think affordable housing is a huge challenge in, in, in our country. And I won't go through too many of the statistics, but in Baltimore, you know, more than half of renters are living in housing deemed unaffordable uh, in terms of uh, the percentage of their income they're spending on it. And nationally, it's more than a quarter of renters. So that's millions and millions of people around this country who struggle every single month just to stay in their their homes. And uh, the book Evicted that came out recently, uh, if, if listeners haven't read it, it's dark but uh, powerful storytelling about the challenge of, of, of folks being kicked out of their houses in the U.S. So, you know, affordability is a big, big issue. You know, technology is only part of the solution. Federal policy, state policy, local policy is critical, but you know, technology can help do a couple of different things. You know, one is to uh, provide new financial tools to renters. And so, Historically, if your options are to get kicked out of your apartment or to get a payday loan with some you know, unholy level of interest, it's still better mm-hmm. to get a payday loan. But those are very predatory lending practices. Uh, we've been looking at a number of companies. Uh, there's a company called GetFlex, for example, uh, that provides uh, renters with a essentially a financial tool where they can pay flex on a week-by-week basis, and Flex upfront pays for the full month's rent. So if you live week-to-week paycheck, hitting months every month, paying a rent a month in advance can be challenging. Flex helps solve that problem. So that's a, a very tactical way to help people stay in their homes. Uh, we've also looked at, at companies that are in the modular construction space uh, who can help reduce the cost of construction and turn the cost of housing. We've been following very closely what's happening in California. 
uh, which now has given as a matter of right the ability to have an accessory dwelling unit on your property if you have space for it. And there are a lot of interesting business models coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, to provide very cheap uh, accessory dwelling units, again, modularly constructed, uh, which is, I think, another important uh, kind of tool in the toolkit here to, uh, to help mm. address affordability. Are you feeling optimistic about what's next, or do you feel like there are really, you know, some pretty significant hurdles that that we need to face? And 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 do you feel like you can, you you will play or or be able to help play a role in in maybe overcoming anything that you see coming down the line? This is a national challenge of pretty significant proportion, and you know it's closely related to the challenge of homelessness. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, gave his state of the uh, state address last night and talked uh, extensively about homelessness in California. So there's no quick fix here. And it's a challenge that the U.S. has dealt with for hundreds of years. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm cautious in saying I'm sort of cavalierly optimistic, but uh, I, I do hope that there definitely are some exciting technology companies that will, on the margins, reduce costs. And I, I think these financial products have a big role to play. Um, but I, I am sanguine that I think we need some serious policy change as well. Mm. One of my favorite questions to ask towards the end of these podcasts is always surrounding who else that you think we should be t- paying attention to. So as, as a podcast host, as a listener to the show, you know, obviously you're an extremely bright guy and you have a lot of accolades attached to your name. So naturally, I'm curious, who else should we be you know, taking a look at and, and who do you feel like is doing inspiring work out there? Well, the other area that I uh, sort of stay awake at night thinking about is sustainability and, and climate change. And, you know, the housing and, and building sector is about a third of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So it's, you know, up there with the, the transportation sector as a whole. And I think you're going to see a lot of uh, pressure coming to bear on the real estate industry to reduce carbon emissions and, and greenhouse gas emissions more broadly. Uh, and that's coming from big institutional investors. Uh, Larry Fink from BlackRock wrote a very public letter about uh, how they're going to be weighing kind of climate exposure more heavily in their investment decisions. You see a lot of consumer demand for greener buildings and greener products generally. Uh, and increasingly at the local and state level, you're seeing significant regulatory pressure. So New York City, for example, has passed a very aggressive climate change bill that's going to require 80% reductions in emissions by by 2050, which sounds far off. But if uh, you know the typical building is built for a you know somewhere between 1500 year lifespan, you know 30 years out is not that far actually. Mm-hmm. And the first kind of Targets are, you know, in the mid 2020s, so four or five, six years out, uh, buildings are going to start getting fined if they haven't started to reduce their carbon emissions. So all of that is creating a kind of perfect storm for technology around sustainability, and that's a space that I'm really excited about. So the work that Sidewalk Labs is doing, they're a subsidiary of of Google focused on smart cities. Uh, They've put forward some extremely... creative and I, I think powerful ideas about using mass timber to build high-rise residential buildings. Timber is much more sustainable, kind of counterintuitively than using concrete and steel because the production of concrete and steel creates a lot of emissions. So this idea of mass timber, cross-laminated timber construction is really uh, cool and I'm, I'm eager to see what comes out of their work in Toronto. There are companies that are helping 
with energy re- retrofits. I recently came across this company called Radiator Labs. Uh, we're not investing them as a firm, uh, but they uh, they'll upgrade your radiators and do really simple things that help you reduce energy expenditures in a building. Another really critical piece around sustainability is measurement and reporting. Uh, you can't manage what you can't measure. Um, our portfolio company, Measurable, is a real leader here. They provide a software that aggregates utility data across a portfolio of buildings uh, through um, some proprietary uh, APIs with essentially every major electric utility in the U.S., uh, which allows you to basically spit out very quickly, very accurate uh, reports on all of your you know, utility use across a, a large portfolio of buildings. And they're doing some really interesting stuff in terms of benchmarking around uh, environmental, social, and governance issues. So definitely keep an eye on, on measurable. And finally, I think, you know, paying attention to what's happening in New York City. I mean, it's the largest urban real estate market in, in the country. And because this climate legislation is going to be a real uh, sort of lab test for, for innovation around sustainability. And so I'm optimistic technology is going to play an important role in helping to uh, reduce our carbon emissions. Those are great suggestions. And uh, Nate, we'll be sure to post those um, links to those in our show notes. So listeners can take a look and dive a little bit deeper and uh, get a little bit more educated on those topics. So thank you for sharing those. Great. We have reached the end of the podcast. And so there's only one more thing to do, Nate, and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to, where they can find you online. Great. Well, Camber Creek is just cambercreek.com. Uh, so you can check out some of our portfolio companies like Measurable that I mentioned. Uh, and you can find me at uh, linkedin.com slash Nate Lowenthal. It's probably the easiest way. Or on Twitter, uh, there, there's very few Lowenthals who spell it L-O-E-W-E-N-T-H-E-I-L. So you'll find me on every social media platform if you just type that in. Perfect. Nate, thanks so much again for joining us today. Thanks so much, Chris. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.